I want us to take our Bibles this morning and let us find the book of Revelation chapter uh, 2 and we'll finish up chapter 2 today. And uh, this morning we're looking at the church uh, in Thyatira. And uh, of course, as we have learned, uh, there is uh, a meaning for the first century of the church in the time in which it was written in to a physical church. But we also understand that there is a, a personal meaning here for you and I as modern day believers today. And then there is also a prophetic nature of this letter in an age that would uh, come uh, some you know, roughly uh, 500 years uh, later uh, than the day in which this letter was written. And we can see that. Uh, so I want us to uh, stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word, and we're going to begin there in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. I do have ten pages of notes, but fear not. I will be concise. That's more for me than you, but I just like to tell you that so that when we get out early today, you can say, man, Steve did a great job today. So anyway. I love you. Mean it. I really do. I love you. Beginning in verse 18 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now again, the messenger there is the pastor. Uh, or the angel there represents a messenger or a pastor. So the letter is going to the church. Okay. So these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent and indeed I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill their children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan as they say I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask this morning for clarity that you would uh, Lord, uh, use me to just, God, give your message to your people. Help me to be faithful to it. And Lord, we are, we're all in this world for just a short moment, God. We're all passing through. God, help us to realize that, God, your word is true. You have a message for us. We can learn. We can be encouraged by it. But Lord, more importantly than anything else, we can know that there is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to gain. And Lord Jesus Christ, you've died for our sins and your arms are spread open this morning, beckoning all of us to come this morning in faithful repentance. 
And you have told us in your word that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will indeed save us to the uttermost. And we thank you for that. So Lord, may you be glorified today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Now, last week we talked about the church at Pergamos and that it was a compromising church because it compromised uh, with the world. And the world began to uh, slip in uh, to the church. Now, we understand from the book of Revelation that God gives us a key uh, to understanding these things as they unfold. So I want you to go with me over to Revelation chapter 1 for just a minute. And John sees this vision here. And we want to talk a little bit about this again just to reiterate what is happening here and why this is important. So in verse 12, um, well let's just back up to verse 10. John, even though he's on an island and he's actually incarcerated for his faith, exiled to this island out in the middle of the sea, he says in verse 10 that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Seven physical churches in in the country we would know as Turkey today. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God. So he saw Jesus. He was clothed with a garment. Down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And his head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. And again, we're seeing this imagery again in what we just read. And it says that his voice was as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining uh, in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell, on, I fell at his feet as dead, like I would too. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. So he's clearly identifying himself as the Lord Jesus here, right? And he says, And I have the keys of hell and of death, and write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Okay? So again, That is the book of Revelation. John writes about things that he has witnessed, things that are happening in the present day, and things that are going to happen in the future. Okay? So he says in verse 20, he says this, The mystery, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw, are the seven churches, okay? So he's opening up a mystery here to us and he's, he's telling us that the seven stars specifically describe messengers and that the seven lampstands are churches. There's also something I want us to see here too about the nature of this mystery. That you and I living further down the timeline of history we have the, the, the blessing of hindsight to look back and see some things. So we're able to look back and see, just as the Scriptures tell us, John's writing about things that are happening 
John's writing about things that he had personally witnessed. And now he's also writing about things that are going to happen in the future. And so as future from when this is written moves forward, those of us who are here today that are getting close to some 2,000 years from the, the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, His burial and resurrection, and we are really some 1,900 years down the road from the writing of this letter, we have the privilege of looking through this prism of history to see prophetically what these churches mean to us. And they represent church ages. Seven specific church ages. And after the last church age ends, the church is leaving. There's not church age number eight. After seven, the church leaves. God removes His church and then God is going to repay uh, the ungodly for the, with judgment on those who persecuted uh, His bride, the church. Okay? So in chapter 2, the church at Thyatira, this is representative of a church age as well as a specific church in history in, in what they called Asia Minor then. Now this is unique because the name Thyatira means unceasing or continual sacrifice. So just a little history here about Thyatira. Number one, it is the smallest city in which the letter goes to a church. Uh, Pergamos, the church that we talked about last week, is the capital of the province in which these things are located. So it is known as continual sacrifice because this specific city is the first city that in, that in the years preceding uh, this letter, whenever this part of the world would be invaded, they would always go through Thyatira first. So it would always uh, be the initial phase of whatever battle, whatever war took place, and before you got to the capital city or the larger city of Pergamos, you'd have to first go through Thyatira. And so it was set up that way, if nothing else, but to give a buffer uh, for the folks at Pergamos to either leave or get ready so that they could defend the city. And so this happened throughout history, constantly. And so it, it, it garnered that name of unceasing sacrifice. But in addition to that, uh, it was famous because it, it, was a, it was a place of a lot of commerce because there was a, a major trade route that went through the city. Also, in particular to Thyatira, they had a woolen industry, and in particularly they sold very colorful uh, garments, in particularly the color of purple. And it was interesting, it was very expensive, because the way it was made is that divers would have to go down into the sea, and they would bring up this shellfish, uh, we, we believe it was actually a marine snail, and they would take this snail, uh, slit the, the throat, if you could find a throat on a snail. But anyway, you would, you would slit the throat of the snail and a, and a drop of this very uh, dark uh, liquid would come out. And they would use that liquid to dye the clothes or the, or the garments. And so it was, it was very expensive because it was so expensive to make. But they were known for being an exporter of this, uh, this purple uh, uh, clothing, purple garments. Uh, it was, uh, you know, purple is a sign of royalty, and so it was very uh, difficult to make, and it, it, was, it was very expensive. Now, we know Paul encountered 
folks from this city in Acts chapter 16. He met a lady down there by the river named Lydia, and she was a seller of purple. Uh, and, and perhaps uh, from her conversion to Christ, maybe Lydia was the one who initially started the church in Thyatira. We don't know that to be specific, only that she lived there and that she did receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Acts chapter 16. But in addition to the city of commerce and things of that nature, uh, this city also uh, had a temple in which they worshipped uh, the occult. And um, there was a prophetess that uh, uh, presided over that temple. And so like most of the cities in that day, uh, they too uh, worshipped uh, fake gods, false gods. Now it's interesting also something about the city here of Thyatira. They were also known for trade guilds, okay? Uh, guilds are just really another name for a union. Uh, these uh, trade guilds were kind of the, the, the ancient world's version of a trade union today. So here's how it would work. If you were going to work in the city of Thyatira, let's say you were a good baker, you were a craftsman, you were a brick mason or whatever, whatever skill you had, if you wanted to be employed in the city of Thyatira, you had to belong to a union. Sounds familiar, don't it? And so by being a part of that union, uh, by being a part of that particular trade guild, they would guarantee certain things. Number one is that the price for your work would be, would be a good wage. Right, and uh, you know, you would not necessarily have to do things you didn't want to do, and so they, you know, there was a lot of incentive for being a part of the trade guild. Okay, you got better pay, you got job opportunity, you were going to be employed. Nobody was going to be able to take you for granted, and you weren't going to have to worry about some some little guy underselling and and getting the job over you. They were not, not independent contractors in the days of Thyatira. Everybody, if you wanted to work in the city of Thyatira, you had to belong to these ancient trade unions. And so they would do that as a way of, of uh, being employed. There was only one problem. In the trade unions, and we'll get to this a little bit later, they had some not so good practices, I guess you would say. Uh, they kind of did some shady stuff. And uh, they were kind of into some uh, real creepy, uh, perverted things at their, uh, at their union meetings. And um, so it would definitely put Christians on the spot to ultimately have to make a choice. Do I go along with this type of behavior? Or do I make a stand and risk probably losing my job? I need you to understand something, church. There is going to always be a cost for you following Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, the world hated me and they're going to hate you because of me. That's why in our nation today, we have a Bill of Rights. And the very first right is the right to a free expression of religion. And that, that doesn't mean just a belief in God. That means a public professing and actual functioning of your religion in, on a day-to-day basis. The ability to organize and evangelize and to stand on truth. And those things are at stake today. Unlike a lot of the other countries around the world that don't have that, we do. 
And that is why there is a lot at stake every time we have an opportunity to go to the polls and vote. Okay? It's important. Because if, if you have a, a government that's willing to run roughshod over your rights and do things that are not explicitly given to them in our Constitution, and if that doesn't bother you and you don't stand up for that, you're going to lose the ability to do that and you're going to be faced with the very same choice that these folks were faced with. As a matter of fact, just over the last few years, we had an unconstitutional mandate that you get a shot that didn't work if you wanted to continue to work. Same thing. There is a cost to following the Lord. And sometimes the choices that we have to make, and they're different for different folks, I understand. But there, it will always cost you something to follow the Lord. And the church at Thyatira, they were having to make that choice. So God has presented to us three distinct ways here. He's presented as the Son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. So the Bible describes Him as the saving one. He's the only one that can save. He's the Son of God. He's the searching one in that He sees all things. He sees our hearts. He sees our works. He sees our hands, what they're committed to. He sees our motivations and the thoughts of our heart. And He is the sovereign one in that He has feet like fine brass. Whenever you see that in the Word of God, uh, feet like brass or, or bronze, that is a sign of judgment. See, it is only God, not only who sees, but has the power to judge. You know, folks say, look, you can't judge me, only God can judge me, right? Yeah, only God can judge you, and that ought to, that ought to scare you. That ought, to, that ought to scare you. That there is one who will judge. Uh, so God is presented that way. And then here we have this church. A physical church in this time, but it's representative of a church age that lasts roughly from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. And in that time period of church age, there is a rise of the Nicolaitans that we read about in the previous chapters. And this is where the church has set up a, a protocol, a leadership structure where the, the priests and the bishops are up here and the lay people are down here. Out of this time period, this is the rise of the papacy. This is the rise of the pope. This is the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not here to bash Catholics. I'm just reading history. That's all I'm doing. And so that's what comes of this and over this thousand year period we see a church that is corrupt that is corrupt now the bookends of this age the bookends begin on one end with the rise of the Nicolaitans and setting up this structure and the purpose of keeping the sheep dumb illiterate and not knowing what the word of God is and on the other end, at the end of this age, there is something that's going to happen that is going to close off that age and move us into the next age. And that is going to happen with a man by the name, specifically a man by the name of Martin Luther and something that he's going to do. And also with the invention of something uh, by a guy named Gutenberg that we call the printing press. He made it specifically to mass produce Bibles. That's, if you like books, if you've benefited from a book today, thank God that a Christian man invented it for the purpose of, of mass producing Bibles to make the church literate 
and, and, and know the Scriptures so that we could get out from under this corrupt church that we call the Dark Ages here in history. And they were dark, very dark. And folks, when we don't, listen, when we reject the truth of Scripture, we descend into the Dark Ages. And that's why this morning, as we look around our culture and we see folks who say that, you know, uh, gender is not a real thing and that there's really not a male or female and this kind of stupidity and we don't know what a marriage is, we don't know what a border is, we, we say all of this dumb stuff, those are not progressive thoughts. I don't care what they call themselves, that's not a progressive thought. That is a pagan, regressive thought. And what put an end to that nonsense was the church. And we'll descend back into dark ages if the church does not stand today. That is a practical matter of fact. Because we are headed into that same direction. So here's this church age. Prophetically, it's speaking. But again, as we, as we always do, though, let's look at the Lord's assessment here. Notice what He says in verse 19. He commends them, right? He says, I know your works. Love. He uses agape there. Uh, service, faith, and your patience. Your perseverance, basically. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So He is commending them for, for things. This was a church that, that, that loved... They were a church that was active. They, they had ministry. They served. They loved people. And according to the Lord, they had good motives. Their motive was love. Their motive was charity. They were faithful. And He even commends that, that their works had even matured. In other words, He saw a church that started and over time their works had got greater. They were doing greater things for the Lord. They were, they were thinking outside of the box. They were doing everything they could to uh, win people to Christ, to, to move uh, the message of God out into every area that they possibly could. They, they were growing in their works. Uh, you know, they, they, were, they were reaching a, a larger audience. They were thinking and saying, how is it that through the connections that God has given me, how can I expand the gospel? How can I broaden the, the, the appeal of the gospel to people that I come in contact with all the time? And let me tell you, from a personal standpoint, every believer needs to be thinking that way. Every believer needs to be thinking that way. When, when you uh, leave a job and you go to another job, that's new people perhaps you've never met. Those are new folks that you're going to have some level of influence on. Influence them for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we're playing uh, football this year. Wreck football. Wreck uh, soccer. Which I still don't understand. But anyway... You're, you, as you do those things, you interact with families. You interact with other kids. You interact with coaches. You have opportunities to bring the snacks, uh, create the end-of-the-year party, right? Those are all opportunities for you to expose people to the gospel. If that's what you're presenting. Now, you can also be that ridiculous parent that, is, that knows everything, that's trying to live out his life through his kid vicariously and, 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 and absolutely make a fool of himself and have no influence for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that too. The choice is yours. 
But he commends them for their maturity. The maturity in their relationships, the maturity in their faithfulness, and the maturity in their works. And I don't think it was just being busy here, okay? There's a difference between ministry and just being busy. I heard a preacher say like this, you can have activities for the sake of just doing something. And he said, for instance, you can bowl for blessings on Monday night, jog for Jesus on Tuesday night, eat in the kitchenette and endure a sermonette on Wednesday night. You can have home runs for heaven on Thursday night and golf for the glory on Friday, and you can spread the table to stay, to stay able on Saturday if you want to. That's a lot of busyness. Not necessarily ministry. We should certainly be in the, involved in the Lord's work, but what is our motivation? It ought, to edify, it ought to edify, lift up the Savior, and it ought to edify the saints of God. Nevertheless, though, God's assessment is that He commended them for their service. But what else does He say? He says, I know your works, and I'm commending you for them, but He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have some things against you. Now, He, he mentions here, over these next four verses, he says, You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, quick background here. There's only one Jezebel I've ever read about, and that is in the Word of God. I've never met in my lifetime a girl called Jezebel. I... I've, I've met a few that act like a Jezebel, but I've never known of a parent that would name their child uh, Jezebel. Never in my life has anybody said, Preacher, we're gonna, we want to be a part of the baby dedication this year, and uh, I need you to make sure you get the spelling right, okay? It's J-E-Z-E-B-E-L-L. I'd be like, what? No, nobody's calling their daughter Jezebel. Just like nobody's naming their kid Judas Iscariot, for crying out loud, or Ichabod. Right? Nobody's doing those things, okay? I mean, just because you say, just because you say, my child has a biblical name, okay, not all of them are good. So you need to research behind that because not all the names are necessarily good things. So I've never met a little girl, never met anybody that said, I want you to meet my daughter Jezebel. Never. Never. And I, I don't know that you have either. Probably not. But if you go back to 1 Kings 16 and you read, and even in 2 Kings there, you read about uh, this woman called Jezebel. And she was the wife of a wicked king named Ahab. Now, her name means chaste. Right? Which is a good thing. She wasn't a chaste woman. She was anything but a chaste woman. And that reminds me that just because you name your son or daughter a name that has a great meaning behind it, that will not automatically ensure that they will be that. You know what I mean? Just because you name something, something does not mean that that's what you're going to get. Children have to be trained in righteousness, right? Because they come into this world broken just like me and you. They come into this world with a fallen, sin-cursed nature, living in a sin-cursed world. That Just because you name them Moses does not mean that they will turn out like Moses. Right? 
You have to train them. But the reason one would want to name their child Moses is because Moses had a testimony of a man who loved God, who followed God. Jezebel had a good name, but the testimony of her life was terrible. She was wicked. And she devoted, she devoted her life to the worship of the god Baal. And, and Baal was this fertility god, and it was nothing except sensual, sexual religion for the purpose, if you did those things, those ungodly, abhorrent acts, it would mean you'd have a good crop in the fall. And I'll tell you, throughout history, the nation of Israel did some abhorrent things in the name of getting a good crop in the fall. They offered their children as a sacrifice to Baal. They committed all kinds of sexual immorality with basically temple prostitutes in order to get a good crop. And the Lord said, this spirit is in this church. There is a woman with this spirit teaching in this corrupt church. Now, it goes on to tell us some more about uh, Jezebel. She was wicked. She was conniving. Remember, uh, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And uh, he couldn't get it, and he pouted. Some of y'all sung that song, Poochie Lip. That's where it comes from. And she said, oh, I'll get, that, I'll get that vineyard for you. She ends up having Naboth killed. Ahab takes the vineyard. She's that wicked. As a matter of fact, she's so wicked that it is prophesied that she will be killed and she'll be eaten by dogs. And we find in 2 Kings that Jehu had her thrown out of a second floor window and then he took his chariot and ran over her. True story. If you think the Bible's boring, you ought to read it, man. (laughs) Jehu has her thrown out of the window and then he runs over her with the chariot and then he gets off the chariot and goes in and has supper. And he tells him, you know, when I get through eating, we'll bury her then. True story. After he gets through eating, he tells them to go out there and bury her. And when they go out there, the dogs have eaten everything but her head, her feet, and her hands. Sounds gross, don't it? But it's also prophetic in that this woman was so wicked, nothing touched her head that contained her thoughts, nothing touched her hands that contained what she committed herself to, and nothing touched her feet, which is what she went to. That's wicked, man. And God said, there is this spirit in that church. You remember those trade unions I was telling you about? When they'd have their meetings, they'd offer an animal as a sacrifice to some god. And oftentimes they wouldn't sacrifice all of the animal, just a piece of the animal, and then they'd have a big barbecue. And they'd eat. And they'd fellowship. And they'd do all manner of sexual immorality Uh, In the name of you're part of this union, you're committed to doing these things, and therefore if you try to leave, we got the dirt on you. We know what you've done. We know the kind of person you are, and we'll ruin you. We'll ruin you if you try to leave. You see the power struggle that began? And he said, you allow these things to take place. Now see, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 15, Paul specifically said, to the Gentile believers, who some were telling them, I know this is a lot, but you've got you to understand this is important. 
those who were Gentiles who never knew anything about Judaism, they were being told, look, you've got to follow the Jewish law. You've got to be circumcised, all these things, in order for you to be right with God. And Paul said, no, you don't. Salvation is by, you know, grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus alone. And he says, the only thing we ask for you to do in Acts chapter 15, he says, abstain from meat offered to idols, don't eat, don't, don't eat the blood, that kind of stuff. Stay away from those pagan practices. That's what he says. That's what he says. He says, don't worry about converting to Judaism. Turn away from your paganism. That's what he's saying. That was happening in this church. You know what we call that today? See, see the Lord called it the depths of Satan in verse 24. He said that spirit causing people to stumble causing people uh, to uh, commit sexual immorality. That is the depths of Satan. You know what we call that today? In a lot of places, we call that progressive Christianity. We call it that I believe certain teachings of the Bible, but I don't lock, stock, and barrel hold them to be the truth. Folks, that's everywhere. We call it progressive Christianity today. We call it deconstructing and then reconstructing our faith. Well, folks, you can tear your faith down all you want to, but at the end of the day, whether you believe it or not, there is only one God, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who died for your sins in a literal place called Calvary. He died for every sin, past present and future he says I have the keys to death hell and the grave and he went into that ground and he took back control of death and he walked out of that grave on the third day and everybody who has placed their faith in Christ will do the same period whether you believe it or not we see the creation on display before us we see the handiwork of God on display before us and therefore we know that God is real. And God says for those who don't repent. And by the way, isn't it interesting? We talk about what time it is. Here's a corrupt church who's got the spirit of Jezebel in it. And God says what? Repent, repent, repent. Folks, it's time for revival. It's time for revival personally. It's time for revival from a standpoint of where we are in, in our church age, where we are in our nation today. We need revival. God's people need revival. We need an authentic revival, an encounter with Jesus Christ, just as this church did. He confronted them over their sin. He declared that there's going to be consequences, that judgment will fall on those who do not repent. And that has not changed. They were committing those acts and they were tolerant of those acts. Folks, we've got to lose this idea, well, you know what, I'm not doing it, but who am I to say that it's wrong? Look, if the Bible says it's wrong, that's got to be our standard too, it's wrong. Who says it's wrong? God said it's wrong. Man, I didn't create the Bible. I'm just here to read it, man. I'm here to follow it. Because God realizes that as people of God, we're prone to wonder. We have this flesh, and we're either going to feed the Spirit, or we're going to feed the flesh. And every single day that I get up and you get up, the flesh wants to be king of your life. He's in survival mode because you've prayed to receive Christ, and you've turned away from your wickedness, and you've embraced the Lord Jesus as Savior, and He's fighting for a dear life. It's not easy. 
And he confronts them with the testimony of the church. He says, folks, your church is allowing God's people to be corrupt. Your church is allowing the testimony of the church to be corrupt. And it's not pointing people to Christ. It's just pointing people to man's system of church. So he says, you've got to do, you've got to repent, you've got to turn, you've got to stand for truth. Now, as I said, from a church age, there's something else that's going on here. The church is being set up for a thousand years to have that same spirit. To have that same spirit. See, Jezebel hated God's word, hated God's people, hated God's pastors. And the church that got set up, the Nicolaitans as they rise, they create this Roman Catholic church. That's what they create. It's the reality of it. Not picking on Catholics, just this is history. And they set up a hierarchy where, again, the people didn't have the scriptures. And it was about what they said, not necessarily what God said, but about what they said. And they had certain things that had to be attended to and taken care of from a ceremonial standpoint for you to be, quote, right with God. As a matter of fact. And these things started... Back as the church was being corrupted and compromising in, uh, in Pergamos, the church at large began to set up prayers for the dead, uh, th- that the sign of the cross was to be worshipped as an idol. They were specifically started to worship Mary. Uh, in AD 600, which really breaks into this age of history, they changed all the worship now to be in Latin. People didn't know that. And it was that way for a thousand years. You'd come, to, you'd come to quote church and they would preach in Latin. They would sing in Latin. And you had no concept of what they were saying or what they were doing. They officially gave the Bishop of Rome the title of Pope. They began to kiss the Pope's feet as a common practice of meeting him. That was also what they did when they saw the emperor. So, I mean, these things were happening. They gave a literal kingdom there around Rome uh, to the church, which God forbid that. In the 8th century, there became the adoration of the saints, the adoration of the cross, image, relics, blessings of bells, fasting, Lent, Advent, Friday on Fridays. All that became, uh, uh, you had to practice those things or you were not right with God. They created holy water, fabricated it, Forbid priests to be married, created the rosemary. I mean, sorry, the rosary. Sorry, rosemary, rosary, you know, I'm sorry, rosary, yeah. Begin to sell indulgences. All of these things the church created and heaped on their people and said, you must do these things to be right. Now listen, that's either scriptural or it's not. And you will not find in the Word of God where it puts any of that. Folks, listen, uh, there is only one head of the church, and that's the Lord Jesus. I'm not, the, I'm not the head, man. I'm not the head of liberty. I am a shepherd. I am a person that God called to feed the flock of God. 
That is what I'm to do to equip the saints because I will stand and give account for that one day. I'm a shepherd. I'm not a, I'm not a priest. I'm not a high priest. I'm not here. I cannot forgive your sin. I cannot take your sin and transfer it to someone else. If there's someone that you have as a relative and you think they're they're living in hell today, I cannot pray them out of hell. You can't give enough to the church to get them out of hell. Those things are untrue. And yet the church promoted those for a thousand years. And it kept the church in darkness. And as the church was beginning to step out of this through what we would call the Reformation, as they were beginning to lead, some were standing up. Luther said, look, I've seen the Scriptures and these things are not true. What would the church do? They would double down on it, man. Not only would they not explain the Scriptures, but now they would say that the traditions that they held are equal now to the Bible. They would even go farther to say that we're going to add the apocryphal books as part of the Word of God. There was no repentance. So we have to ask ourselves, Did these things or did these things not happen in history? Did God not speak prophetically of this age in history? Yes, He did. He did. And we'll see as we get to the next church, we'll see the Reformation. As we get to the next church, we'll see the explosion of missions. We'll we'll see the period of time that Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon and many of the other missionaries that we know came out of that period. And then we will see that today we're living in that Laodicean church age. God said it would happen, and it's happening. And God has said that one day we're leaving. And the people that are leaving are those who have a real, authentic relationship with Christ. Sitting here today, does not mean you're part of the church. And I'm not talking about part of the building. I'm talking about part of the bride of Christ. See, God, as He tells them, these things I have against you, He gave them time to repent. He's offering repentance today. And He talks about the consequences here. In verse 23, it costs them their children's lives. Folks, what you believe about heaven and hell and whether or not God is real or not and the Bible, those things have eternal consequences not just for your life but the life of those that are coming behind you and are coming behind them. Folks, for a thousand years people walked into a church to try to find God and they couldn't find Him. And we're in a world today, church, that is desperately seeking that the real Jesus might just stand up. And what are we doing? He says, church, take comfort in this. Stay the course. You haven't compromised. You're not corrupt. Hold fast in verse 25 till I come. 
And he that overcomes and keeps my works until the end, in verse 26, to him I will give power over the nations. You know, this is the first time here, I believe, this is the first time that Jesus is making reference to a millennial reign here. And that's why if you believe we're living in post-millennial, I'm having trouble seeing the time in history where Jesus is reigning on the earth. Because I'm, I'm looking back and I just don't see a thousand years of, of, of a righteous reign. No, because that's coming. That's in the future. And he says, those of you who are faithful will be not, 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 not a governor. I won't be governor. I'll be prefect. No, you're not. You'll be a shepherd. You'll be a person that's there to guide the people of God, to love the people of God, to be sacrificing for the people of God. He says, stay hopeful for the deliverance of God is coming. So we see a personal connection here. God's desiring us not to be corrupt, but to be the pure church. God is showing us a prophetic meaning here in that He said these things were going to happen, and they did. And so that means we can trust it. It's affirmed. We see it happening, and we know that what comes later, we can bank on that too. This ought to encourage us as Christian people to tell the world that there is a Savior and to tell the world that I know Him and I'll point you in that direction. I'll lead you. I'll bring you to Him. I love that in the Gospels, you know, that the disciples would be, hey, we met Messiah. Really, where's He at? Come follow me and I'll show you. Folks, we need to ask ourselves a real honest question. If someone honestly, hey, you're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, and they said, okay, well, I want to know God, I'm going to follow you, where would we lead them? Where would we lead them? Would we lead them to an authentic, faith-filled relationship with Jesus, or would we just lead them to being a better version of a lost man? or a lost woman. Something to consider. What time is it? Jesus said it's time for revival. It's time for God's people to be revived. Revive us again. Revive us again, Lord. I pray that is your heart's desire today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we love you. We confess our need for you. Guide the direction of this invitation. And for those who who may have never been saved, and maybe they are some here today that don't even know what that means. I pray, God, you give them the strength that when we stand in a moment and we begin to sing, God, you give them conviction to step out, to come forward, or to ask, ask me as they're leaving today, hey, Pastor, how can I know that Jesus is my Savior? God, I'd be grateful, honored, humbled today to introduce them to you. God, have your way in every heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand to our feet.